0: Alright, well this morning we wrap up Hebrews chapter 4. This is kind of a transition section between what we've been looking at and what comes later. uh, Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16. Bear with me a little bit this morning. I'm a little short of breath, uh, but we'll make it through. Again, this section kind of wraps up. the section on uh, hearing the call to rest in God, uh, but also prepares us for some lengthy discussion that's going to come about Jesus as our high priest and a, a greater high priest than any priest who has come before him so hebrews 4:14 4, to 16 again this is god's very living word let me read it for us since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we come before God's word, let me pray again briefly for us. O Lord, our God and Father, now we come before your word and ask that you would bless this time and that indeed you would speak to us. And in speaking to us, you would fulfill your very own promise that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void. Instead, it accomplishes everything you purpose for it and is successful in everything for which you send it. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in abundance this morning. So that our eyes would be open to see and our ears would be open to hear all that you would have for us from your word. Make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we might live and walk according to what it teaches us. Our Father, we ask this as always in the precious, holy, wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, we've seen the author, heard the author refer to Jesus as a high priest before, way back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Jesus was made a high priest so that he could make propitiation for the sins of God's people. So back in chapter 2, the emphasis was on Jesus' work that satisfies God's wrath because of our sin in his sacrificial death for us, but also his work to restore us to God's favor through his perfect obedience uh, to God's law and that being credited to our account. Those who are dead because of sin, death is the just judgment for sin. (coughs) Come on. There we go receive the work of God on their behalf, their dead lives now covered by the living blood of Jesus. And now we stand before God, having received his favor. We talked about how this process that happened wasn't just a mere ritual or a religious sacrifice like others around the world, pagan sacrifices, but a, a, a real profound, wonderful act of God's love for his people. Demonstrated in the fact that the Son of God became like us, was suffered and tempted like us. And so he's able to help those who are being tempted, us, his people. Now, the author went on, now that he's reminded us of the great work of God and that God is uh, the Son of God, Jesus, is a, is a greater priest and prophet than Moses, he goes on to warn us not to reject the message that Jesus speaks, to hear the voice of God's living, active, penetrating word, not rejected, not to be hard-hearted rebels, but believe and turn to God in repentance and faith. Having done that, now he returns to this idea that he's introduced before of Jesus as a high priest. It's a theme that he's going to, come to repeatedly, frequently, throughout just about every chapter in the rest of this letter, focusing on it real carefully and closely in chapter 7 when he compares Jesus to Melchizedek, Um, but he's reintroducing it now to emphasize that Jesus is greater than any human high priest who's ever lived. This is kind of the emphasis from chapter 4 verse 14 through chapter 5 verse 10. Tied to that earlier passage of warning, but also the call to hear the voice of Jesus who leads us and calls us into the place of rest. The rest of God, found in the presence of God himself. And what he's saying is that Jesus, our high priest, has gone before us into that place of rest. And because he's done this, we also now have confidence to enter that place of rest. So I want to look at the passage kind of verse by verse here this morning. Three verses in the first one. What Jesus did when he entered into the heavenly, holy places for us. Secondly, in the second verse, (coughs) verse 15 What was different about Jesus as high priest and how he entered into that holy place? And then, thirdly, in verse 16, uh, the encouragement that we can enjoy because of what Jesus has done for us in entering into that holy place. So, beginning with verse 14, let me back up a little bit again to that week when we looked at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. In the service that day, we read Leviticus 16 as our Old Testament reading. And just a reminder that that's the chapter where it's described how Aaron and the later high priests are supposed to go into the temple, into the holy places of the temple, and even into the most holy place once a year, the elaborate preparations they had to make, the elaborate and careful sacrifices that had to be made. And there before the Ark of the Covenant, atop of which is the mercy seat of God, surrounded by the two cherubim, the high priest sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the people of God, that they might receive his mercy. He only goes in once a year. He goes in through that thick, heavy curtain, the veil has separated that part of the temple from the other holy parts of the temple or tabernacle. And we've talked about and you've heard the stories about how the high priest had bells on him or a rope around his waist, the bells to make sure that they could hear he was still moving back there behind the curtain and therefore alive, and the rope around his waist to pull him out in case he did something wrong, some sort of disobedience or lack of holiness in the presence of God, and so struck dead, and they would have to pull him out by the rope around his waist. Now, I I bring that up and and remind us of it because this helps us understand the language of verse 14, in particular that Jesus has passed through the heavens. Some have tried to take this phrase to say that there are levels of heaven, uh, that Jesus, by his work, made it all the way to the highest level and, and that there are therefore different levels of spirituality or different ways to approach God. That's not what the author is saying. He, he's, this is a letter to the Hebrews, people who understood the temple and the temple worship and the temple sacrifices. Remember, the temple and its grounds are holy, and the holiness increases as you move from the outer parts to the inner parts of the temple, from the outer court of the Gentiles to the court of women To the court for the men, the Jewish men only, to inside the temple itself, and then to the most holy place behind the veil. Each step going further in, getting holier and holier and holier. But also remember that the temple itself is meant to be a visible, symbolic home of God on earth. Just a symbol, just a representation of the heavenly reality, God's home truly, is in heaven, not on earth. But here in this representation on earth, it's God's home, his throne is there, his mercy seat, there, right there, in the middle of the most holy part of the temple itself. So the author's not trying to tell us something about the nature or structure of heaven, but about Jesus and what he did as he went into the heavenly places. He didn't go into the earthly temple he had no right to as one who was a son of Judah and not a son of Aaron or the Levites. Instead, he went into the real dwelling place of God, not the earthly copy. He went into where God really dwells, into the true heavenly places, passed through those heavenly places to the most holy place of all, Presenting himself to God and ultimately taking his place at the right hand of the Father. This is why Jesus is called the great high priest. And the author is using kind of a play on words here. In Hebrew, high priest is literally great priest. So when he calls him great high priest, he's calling him the great, great priest. The greatest, in other words, of all priests who have ever lived. And as he goes into the heavenly place where God truly dwells, he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. He offers his own blood at the mercy seat of God in the heavenly places to win God's favor for his people, atoning for their sins and restoring them to a right relationship with God, being acceptable to him once and for all. And then having done this, he took up his place at the Father's right hand where he waits until all his enemies are made his footstool and from which he will return to judge all men and establish his kingdom for all eternity. We who are his people who confess our sins and receive the work of Christ for us, resting on it by grace and through faith, may therefore have confidence in our salvation. And so the author says, hold fast to it, therefore. Don't engage in sinful, hard-hearted rebellion, but instead with confidence, hold on to that salvation. Hold on to that confession. And with confidence, enter into God's rest, trusting in Jesus, trusting in his high priestly work on your behalf. Now what's so special or what's so different about Jesus' work as a great high priest? We get to this in verse 15. More than any other high priest, and chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 is going to expound on this, (coughs) expand on these ideas, but more than any other great high priest, Jesus can relate to us. Back in verse 17 of chapter 2, Jesus was said to be made like his brothers, like us, in every respect. Here in verse 15, he's been tempted like us in every respect, yet without sin. Here's another place where people try to read more into the text than what is there. They'll they'll say that like us in every respect includes being like us in our fallen human nature. But that in learning to overcome temptation... Jesus overcame sin and became perfect. Again, that's not what the text is saying. If if you remember the controversies about Jesus and his nature, divine and human, you might remember in the old arguments (coughs) of the church that the difference between orthodox true faith and heretical (laughs) false teaching was the difference between having or not having the letter I in the word. Homo-homo or homoi in Greek. Homo means the same as. A homophone is a word that sounds the same as another word. Homo, I, or homoi, means like, similar to. That word sounds similar to the other one, but it's not exactly the same. Here, the little iota is there, the little I. God is not the same as us, but he's tempted like us. He's similar to us in that respect. His human nature is a true human nature, the same as ours, but his temptation is like ours. He's like us, but his human nature is not fallen, the same as ours. What the author is saying simply is that Jesus was tempted like us, and the word can also mean tested. He was tempted. He was tested the same way that we are, very similarly to how we are tempted and tested in our day-to-day lives. And what's, what's so amazing about this, and glorious about this truth, what it means for us practically is that as you think about your own life, as you think about the temptations that you face, or the tests and trials that you experience, what the author is saying is that there is nothing that you have gone through, nothing that you have experienced, That he doesn't get. That he hasn't also been tested or tempted in a similar way like us. Sickness. He knew it. He experienced it. He suffered from it. Anxiety, worry, fear. He knew anxiety and worry and fear. Loneliness. He was abandoned by his family. By the time he was arrested for the purpose of being eventually crucified, no one was left around him, abandoned by all of his friends. Tempted by pride and glory, remember Satan's offering in the wilderness? He was tempted. Or tempted to take the easy way out. Again, Satan's offer of earthly kingdoms. Rule the easy way. Get your kingdoms the easy way. Submit to me, worship me, and I'll give you these kingdoms right now. You don't have to go through Life and death and resurrection and burying everybody's sins. Take the easy way out. Fear? He feared God's wrath. He feared death on the cross. Family turmoil and trouble. His father died when he was still young. Joseph was not around. Sometime after Jesus turned 12 years old, Probably had to raise his younger siblings. So he knew some of the anxiety and fear and sorrow and frustration of what it's like to raise children. Like his father, he probably worked as a carpenter. And so all the experiences and frustrations and fatigue and hassles of work are things that he would have experienced for many, many years. He had the frustration of trying to teach his dim-witted, foolish disciples. How many of us have tried to train somebody, have tried to teach somebody, and they just don't get it? And how frustrating is that? Jesus experienced that. Crowds came and pressed in on him, and he just had to get away to find peace and rest. Some of us feel the need to just get away from the pressures of those around us. And I could go on and on and on with example after example. There's nothing that you and I have experienced no temptation, no fear, no worry, no anxiety, no frustration, no test, no trial, that Jesus cannot relate to because he experienced something similar to it. Not a single thing. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, that leaves nothing out, in every respect, has been tempted or tested as we are, yet without sin. He did not give in to sin. In all that frustration, he did not curse God. Remember, the temptation for Job, the challenge for Job, was that he would curse God. Jesus did not give in to temptation. He did not rebel against God. So when Jesus entered into the holy place before God's throne, His mercy seat, carrying all of our sins upon His shoulders with His own shed blood to sprinkle on that throne of grace, He entered knowing us intimately, knowing all of our weaknesses and frailties, our temptations, our tests, and He knew them more intimately than any man who ever walked on the face of of this earth. Jesus knows you. (laughs) To put it in modern, contemporary language, he gets you. He understands you. He knows what you are going through, what you've been through. And then, as a result, he sympathizes with you. He cares for you. He loves you with a great, great, great love. He's not unable to sympathize with us because he's experienced what we have experienced. Now we often look for comfort and for sympathy from people who've experienced similar things to us, someone we can relate to. This is very wise. It's very helpful, especially within the church body, that we be connected in such a way that we can turn... Someone comes to us and says, boy, I'm really struggling with this. And we can go, you know, brother so-and-so over there has been through it. You should talk to him. Or sister so-and-so has gone through something similar. You should talk to them. That's very practical and very wise. But it's mind-boggling to me and wonderful to realize that when Jesus went into that most holy place before the Father himself, he did so with as great and personal, and intimate and understanding of you and me than anyone who ever lived. That Son who stands before the Father, mediating for us, pleading our case to the Father, can do so because He knows us. He gets us. He can relate to us. So there's encouragement for us, or there should be, and the author calls us to this in verse 16. So then... Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I read Matthew on purpose this morning, not just to recall the trials and troubles that Jesus faced on the way to the cross, but that particular part where it relates to us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that most holy place protected, shielded from exposure to a sinful world, and protected not just by the curtain, but the other layers of holiness surrounding the temple, was now ripped in two, exposed to the whole world. Now not, not, just, the whole, not just the high priest can go in, but anybody can go in. And that's what Jesus does for us. Where before, only the high priest could go in, and only once a year... You and I, who are God's people by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, we can go in anytime we want. (laughs) Think about that. Where a man had to go in with elaborate preparations and bells on his clothes and a rope around his waist for fear that he might die for doing something wrong. We can go in boldly. That's what it means to go in with confidence confidently, boldly draw near to the throne of grace. That's what Jesus has done for us by going before us. Our great high priest entered into that heavenly place before us. The same Jesus who knows us, gets us, relates to us, died for us, rose to life for us. Now we can confidently approach that holy place the throne of grace, the mercy seat of God. So do it, says the author. And doing it, find what you need in your time of need. Two things to find. Mercy, the compassion and concern and care from a God who knows you and understands you and knows what you're going through. True mercy, true compassion, but also grace. God's favor find again and and have certain knowledge and confident assurance that God indeed does love you and cares for you and protects you and takes care of you in every need that you have or to tie it to what we've been talking about for the last several weeks enter with confidence into the rest that God is offering to you through Jesus Christ His Son. Whatever your need, whenever you have that need, God is ready to give mercy and grace. Think of it this way. Here's Israel gathered together on the border of the promised land. God has promised to give them this land, promised it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And instead of hearing a report from 12 scouts who checked out the land, Imagine instead that the leaders of the people had already gone into the land, occupied the greatest city or cities, and ruled from those cities. And we're saying to them, I'm in charge. Come on in. Conquer this land with me. How many of them would have turned away in fear? That's the picture that's being presented to us, I think. Jesus, our leader, our king, has gone before us, conquered sin, conquered death, sat down at the right hand of the Father, rules and reigns with him, and says, come in. If it would have been stupid for Israel not to go in, how much more foolish is it for us not to take advantage of that offer? Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavenly places into the presence of God himself, won God's favor for us, knows us intimately, and is ready to give us the mercy and the grace that we need, when we need it, and every time we need it. What the author is saying is, don't be a hard-hearted fool and reject this rest offered to you by God. Instead, believe in Jesus and with Him boldly enter into the holy place of God's throne where God's rest can be found and there receive mercy and there find grace. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the salvation that you have offered, for the rest that you give to us, that we may rest from all our labor and trouble and strife and worry, trying to win your favor and prove ourselves righteous before you, and instead we can accept, receive, rest upon the work of Jesus for us in his perfect obedience, that his blood has cleansed our sins, and won that favor that we, that we desperately seek. Thank you for sending a Son, not just to be a religious leader, not just to be a prophet or a teacher, but, but to be one who would live like us, suffer, be tempted, be tested like us, <coughs> so that he can relate to us and understand us and have true love and compassion and sympathy for us. Let us not ever forget these wonderful and precious truths and knowing that they are true, rise up in confidence to serve you and to follow after the ways that you have given to us. We cannot do it in our own strength. We ask for the helper, the comforter, that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us, to strengthen us, to teach us, and to guide us on the way so that we may indeed be your faithful servants and not stray or err, or find ourselves in in stubborn, foolish rebellion against you. Teach us, and guide us, and lead us by your word, and by your spirit. All of this, Father, we ask, as always, in the precious, wonderful, matchless, superior, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.